Welcome friends, you're listening to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. On this show, I'm returning to the subject of Moorcock and role-playing games. Late last summer, Phil, Loz and I discussed our history of role-playing in the multiverse, and we had a few things to say about Games Workshop's UK version of Stormbringer 3rd Edition. Following that show, we had some great discourse with gamers and fans of the various versions of the Stormbringer game, and I also had a closer look at some of the others out there that wear Moorcock on their sleeves. I also kicked off a Stormbringer game with some of the gang using those 3rd edition rules as written, so randomly generated everything, for better or worse. And uh, for more information on how that random generation can go, have a listen to episode 12, or in a few episodes time we'll look at that a little bit more closely to see what the results were. We're only two sessions in right now, but suffice to say that plumes are involved, and it may take a couple more sessions for me to get my Games Master Mojo back in full, as it's been a while and this is my first time running a game online. Meanwhile though, while looking at what's around on the indie scene, I realised that one of the more interesting examples I'd come across was the work of Ralph Lovegrove, the man behind the Fictoplasm podcast and blog. Ralph's been diving into the Millennium Edition Mocock collections from the early 90s on his show, and, thanks to that overlap, really a marvel of synchronicity, I decided to invite him up to the roof gardens to talk Mocock, fantasy, podcasting, and RPGs. We also touch on the various influences cited in the original AD&D recommended reading list, Appendix N, and its subsequent variants. And if you're interested in delving deeper into that, be sure to check out the Appendix N podcast if you haven't already. For the uninitiated, AD&D is Advanced Dungeons and Dragons from the 1970s. So, join us in Derry and Tom's as we take another look at the world of Mokokian gaming and find out a little bit more about Stormhack. So we are back in Derry and Tom's and I'm absolutely delighted to have with me Ralph Lovegrove, creator of the and host of the Fictoplasm podcast and avowed Moorcock fan as well as anybody who's been listening to his podcast for the last well, six to eight months, maybe even more, will attest. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. And actually, in fact, it won't be the first time people have heard your voice because you did a birthday message for the Christmas Mocock birthday episode. Yeah, that I did. Yeah, thanks for thanks for giving me the opportunity. I think that it was you know, very much from the heart. It's uh, Mocock not only affected me because I like Mocock, but also because of his contributions to New Worlds. Mm. And of course, then we have um, Christopher Priest and, and M. John Harrison and... Uh, J.G. Ballard and the other sort of classic new wave mm. authors that I'm fond of. So, so yeah, it was it was good to say that, mm. and uh, and I think more people should recognise that that that's also his contribution as well. Mm. So. Well, absolutely delighted to have you here. So, whenever we have a new guest on, the first question I always tend to ask is, "What is your history with Moorcock?" Yeah, good question. Mm. Um, my history with Moorcock. Well, um, I kind of get the feeling that. Um, I, I don't know exactly our relative ages, but I do get the sense that I came to Moorcock about 10 years later than most people around our age group. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I first read some Moorcock in the 90s Millennium Editions, and it was when I was, a, when I was at university, uh, in my second year specifically, and um, I saw... I'd, I'd seen Moorcock beforehand. Uh, I'd seen it in the library. I had particularly the very evocative covers mm. that they used for the, the Grafton editions for Elric. Um, but I hadn't really got into it at all. Uh, and then for the first time, there were the Omnibus editions collected 
and uh, and so I could uh, dive into them and read the trilogies and quadrilogies as a complete block. And that's really sort of, it was the first time, it was the first fantasy I really adored. Um, and I think it was to do with the, um, not simply the, the sort of the energy and the, the, the sword and sorcery-ness of them, but also the, the scope of the ideas, mm. really. So my background, that, that was... Um, in my very early 20s when I first read Moorcock uh, and uh, I started with Hawkmoon then quickly I, I, I got as many of the other ones that were in print at the time and they were they were in the process of being printed then Yeah, the, uh, those so, Millennium Editions were really, really beautiful volumes as well weren't they? Yeah, they're lovely and I've, I've, I've got a complete set now uh, I, I plugged the gaps a few months, about a year ago thanks to Abe Books mm. um, which is... Which is a wonderful thing. I mean, it, it, there are many good editions of uh, of the different Moorcocks, but those are very interesting also because they have the forwards in them. So it's a retrospective of Moorcock from the end of the 80s, early 90s, that talks about what he was thinking about 20 years ago when he originally wrote them and collected them together. And that in itself is is a real joy to come back to as well. Mm. But yeah, that that's uh, that's where I came from. So it was like early nineties, and those editions were my first editions. And I picked up the Grafton ones where I could because I didn't have a lot of money. So I just I got I, I read the editions that I could get my hands on. So I I got uh, the first and second Quorum editions originally in the Grafton editions, uh, but. Uh, that's it, really. Yeah, I think the Millennium Editions were a, a real eye opener for me because, of course, I'd done the Pokemon thing of of coming across them in the eighties in in completely the wrong order, and then doing the um, the, the second hand bookshops and picking up sixties editions, seventies editions, some with mild revisions, and then of course the Millennium Editions un- underwent probably the most substantial set of revisions that Murcock ever applied to his work. Maybe arguably until the Golanx editions, because I think he's applied some some revisions there as well. But I remember seeing that I came across some of them for the first time in a second-hand bookshop in Whitby, uh-huh. um, and I managed to get I think six or seven of them, and two of them were signed, and they cost me a five pounds each. So I came away. No, wow. sorry, not not Whitby. Robin Hood's Bear was a a bookshop in Robin Hood's Bear, but those covers, the Robert Gould covers, which I'd never seen before because they were from Door Editions in America. Absolutely fantastic set. So what had you been reading prior to Murcock? What was your entryway, your gateway into fantasy? Okay. It was the same thing that everyone reads, and honestly, I was very dissatisfied with it. So, I never loved Tolkien, and I and I don't I don't say that to be divisive and sort of uh, I don't know set a uh, set a, a sort of position of Moorcock versus Tolkien, which is something that I think is uh, I think the debate is more nuanced than that, and you have to read Wizardry and Wild Romance obviously to to actually get into it. Um, but I was never really satisfied with Tolkien. Uh, and I read um, things like uh, Dragonlance, uh, the Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman stuff, which I lapped up as sort of they they kind of presented themselves as the way I would want to play D and D, but they weren't the the they weren't the novel that I wanted to read. Mm. Um, and um, and what else? Yeah, David Eddings, which um, was similarly uh, I enjoyed reading them at the time, but. Um, uh, they they were very dissatisfying as fantasy, and I think this is the problem that that a lot of fantasy has is that it um, first of all it applies modern sensibilities to a pseudo medieval environment, 
um, and it, it very much views the, the way that social structures should be uh, in that sense, which I, I think it's fine. I think it's it's people should write interesting progressive fantasy with non-patriarchal systems, for example, but it's very dissatisfying just to see our world reflected in the fantasy world, a secondary world that really lacks so much imagination that uh, it, it has... Um, uh, all it is is really sort of um it could be set anywhere mm. it has no uh, it has no cosmological interest uh, the gods are not particularly significant they may as well be political entities mm -hmm. and, I, and i think that's an interesting thing that you could say about um moorcock maybe that's for later but it's uh, generally yeah not very satisfied at all with the fantasy i had access to in the 80s from libraries and such i did read a lot of what I, I read, a lot of Brian Aldiss, uh, and I uh, at, at that age before then, and I read a lot of um, kids' fiction like Nicholas Fisk and H.M. Hoover and that sort of thing. And and I still feel and Alan Garner, of course, and I still feel an affinity to for that, um, in, well into my adult uh, life. Uh, and uh, I think that certainly, if you want to go for tightly written weird fiction, then you can do worse than looking at a lot of sort of classic kids' fiction from 70s and 80s. Mm. Uh, you know, definitely the Nicholas Fisk. Uh, superb, interesting science fiction with really interesting situations that he sets up. Uh, you know, things like Trillions and Grinny and um, two I read recently was on the flip side and uh, Time Trap. Time Trap's amazing. Uh, and um, unfortunately, it's really hard to get hold of. You, you have to look for it secondhand. Right. But that was really that was really my background reading. It's not like the not like the classic Tolkien. It was. I didn't get into E.R. Edison until later. I didn't get into Dunsany. I didn't get into Howard at all or Lovecraft. I got, Lovecraft was slightly easier to get hold of with those. I can't remember which editions they were in the eighties. They they turned up in the library. The ones with the Tim were, White covers. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Grafton, I think. So. I think. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I almost um, a lot. I think Grafton generally that was their thing, right? Voyager. <laughs> uh -huh. But I th but I think I think the original always... ones were either Grafton or Panther. Yeah, I recognise the uh, the spines yeah. now. You mentioned it. Yeah, those are definitely the editions I read. Yeah. But yeah, th that's really where I was. Uh, it was very much at the mercy of what was what was available, mm. and uh, some of it. I carry into my adult life, and some of it um, I have no interest for anymore. Mm. In, in many ways, I have a major bone to pick with those Tim White covers because, strangely, you know, I've, I've mentioned numerous times on this show before how it was my granddad Pops who, who got me into reading all this stuff. He never ever introduced me to Lovecraft. I didn't, I didn't come across Lovecraft until I was probably sixteen or seventeen, and it was the Tim White cover of one of those three collections that was so garish and lurid. I just thought, yeah, I need a bit of that. And, uh, well, the cover, the cover does not reflect the contents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're probably the most inappropriate covers for Lovecraft stories that I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember that the, the one, I, one I remember, the first one I picked up was the third volume, The Haunter in the Dark. Mm. And it's just like this, well, it's basically this Nergloid uh, demon type thing squatting and, and chewing on bones or something. Yeah, I think, I think it's got a woman uh, in his hand. He's yeah, about to jump down on her. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty very goya. Mm. But it's like that. That is absolutely not what what was the the contents inside, which were. Um, I I do remember hearing a fantastic um, uh, audio book 
someone narrating some Lovecraft and I remember listening to that and falling asleep to it because it had this hypnotic quality of the if you you had sort of a fairly plummy English accent spit mm. narrating Lovecraft it has this hypnotic quality to it yeah. and, and that was that was interesting Lovecraft would have loved that because he was a massive Anglophile wasn't he so, so well, some, well. some plummy Englishman reading his books he'd have been absolutely delighted with and uh, you know my, my disappointment with the contents after the Tim White cover doesn't mean I was necessarily anti or am necessarily anti Lovecraft. I do like a bit of Lovecraft, but oh, yeah. yeah, at the time I was into I, I wanted my um, unpleasant genre fiction. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's, uh, I I do agree. I, Lovecraft did teach me a couple, teach me to expand my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I got things words like hoary and antediluvian. Yeah. Uh, you know, before before the uh, the vampire craze, of course, yeah. where the antediluvians were a thing. Yeah, I, I still um, don't really know what Cyclopean Eldritch Towers are. Or Cyclopean to- Towers with Eldritch screeches coming from them. I don't know. Who knows? It's, 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 <laughs> it's not something that's ever really kind of registered with me. But my granddad was giving me more, things more like um, Arthur Merkin and things like that, um, which were probably a little bit more traditional. But what he did give me was... Um, the, the first time I ever came across H.P. Lovecraft's name is because he's quoted on the Sphere paperback edition of The House on the Borderlands by William Hope Hodgson, where there's uh-huh. a quote from Lovecraft saying, a classic of the first water. And even then, I ain't got a fucking clue what he's talking about. And, and I understand that he means it's good, but what do you mean a classic of the first water? So that was my first test of who of, of, of Lovecraft or any kind of you know writing by Lovecraft. So I'm, I'm more of a Hope Hodgson guy to be honest, and an Arthur-making mm. guy. But, you know, I, I recognise his, his qualities. So w- when it comes to Moorcock, you you, know, you mentioned that we'll maybe get onto certain things later on. Well, let's get onto them now. What is it about Moorcock's fantasy that was more satisfying? I think the first thing I would say is that the, the one thing that I encountered in Moorcock that I had not seen in anything else but does appeal to... Does appeal to my sense of, uh, you know, a, um, a multi-genre, multiversal setting... Is the multiverse and the the um, cosmology and the idea of uh, law and chaos uh, the how do I put this? Moorcock's cosmology is um, when previously what you've seen very much is a, a binary good and evil and very human scale. You have you have warriors, you have sorcerers, uh, you have the bad guy. It's all on a human scale, and they may have they may be working at the behest of some gods. Those gods are definitely maybe influencing them. Um, what Moorcock has actually got is he's got a, a number of beings on different scales of reality, uh, of which uh, this changes their their breadth of their vision and changes the scope of their activities. But it's the, also the idea that they touch many different realities at once. Mm. They don't always remember their themselves in other realities, and this is obviously a, a feature of the Eternal Champion. But you get very much the sense that it's a, it's also a feature of, for example, the Sword Gods. Mm. Arioch is known to El- Elric and Corum when they meet together in the King of Swords, and they remark about how they're they're almost like they're two different two different entities entirely. And I like this idea that it's it's basically it is a mask that repeats a pattern that repeats itself throughout multiple different realities, which is obviously what Moorcock is doing. And I enjoyed then going through different stories and seeing the patterns that turn up and reading it with fresh eyes. I've picked on these much more as well. Corum, which I just uh, finished recently, again, uh, there's uh, there are things where it's obvious that the Warhound of the world, World's Pain was calling back to certain scenes in The King of Swords, 
and also calling back to Jerry Cornelius when it was written. Mm -hmm. And so there's this idea of uh, repeating patterns not only with characters and with situations, but also with scenes as uh, taken wholesale from mm -hmm. one and inserted into another, like there are, uh, one is a reflection of the other. Now, I don't think I would have articulated it that way when I was first reading, but I would certainly say that uh, that overall sense of... Um, a larger structure and a pattern um, and the conflict between law and chaos that is uh, implied by that pattern, that was certainly probably one of the things that really got to me mm. about Moorcock. Then there's also the the, the energetic writing and the, the sheer pace of what the way he writes. Um, I think that's it's undeniable, and certainly in the earlier, earlier books where... Uh, there is something new happening every third or fourth page. I know he has a writing process and various people and podcasters have commented on it. Um, it really shines through and it makes some of the novels hit or miss, mm -hmm. but uh, they're quick to get through and they're quick to reread. Mm. And they uh, this sort of general pattern is also... Very appealing if you want to think about how to grab the reader's attention. Mm. And, and so I think there's a lot of lessons that are also there for, for anyone running a game, mm. for example, and writing their own fiction. Um, I'm not sure how coherent that answer was, but there's, there's a basically, yeah, it's, it's the cosmology, it's the characters, it's the sheer energy of Moorcock's writing. Um, and uh, that's probably what really gripped me. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. Because whilst in some ways the characters are, to greater or lesser degrees, identifiable, you know, lots of people identify with Elric as the, as the moody teenager, and it's probably a little bit more difficult to identify with Erikos for <laughs> for what he gets up to. But Coram is much more cultured, and um, Hawkmoon is, is kind of the uh, the traumatised veteran. Um, he, does, he doesn't half whine, though. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's such a... Uh, and and you know the thing between between Coram and uh, and Hawkmoon is that Hawkmoon is also dissatisfied by the fact that the fates are pulling him this way and yeah. that, um, but he doesn't do anything about it. No. He just bitches and moans <laughs> about it. But Coram Coram speaks truth to power. I mean, it's like Coram is really the adult in the room when you sort of have the the. the Ericosa, I think you could argue that he's he's fairly mature, but he's also very introspective and and self-obsessed whereas Coram just says man this is bullshit you know i'm being pulled this way and that by chaos and and he and he he he, he gives the the gods of chaos the length of his tongue on more than one occasion and he does the same thing to law it's not like he sort of you know gives law a free pass he t he tells arkin that you're a bit crap aren't you yeah. for a god i mean sort of why why would i even try to enlist your help you can do nothing lord arkin yeah, you know, yeah. Bugger off back to your tomb. I'll go and sort it out. <laughs> then shall I? Yeah. So I, I've, I, I've got a lot of respect for Coram. Yeah, it's very true. And I, I'm, I'm just uh, getting back into Coram again. It's I've just read the Knight of the Swords probably for the first time in 25 years, and um, yeah. Queen of the Swords is next to come. So I'm a little bit behind the curve and in memory wise on all of that. But I think what you said really rings true about the appeal and the attraction of kind of the cosmology and the wraparound stuff. The characters are interesting, the protagonists are interesting, but actually it's the events and how they all tie into each other and how they all interconnect over being written over decades that make it so incredibly rewarding as a reader to come across something and think, I understand that. 
I get that reference and, and draw a connection with something that you maybe read six weeks or six years or 16 years ago and kind of bring in that broader whole. And I'm not sure there's anybody else out there, or there certainly wasn't at the time when I was reading them, that came anywhere close to approaching that level of absorption that, that could suck you in into making all of these mental connections um, between all of these different things and, and realising that something... Uh, I'm still on the fence a little bit as to whether a lot of this was by grand design or whether a lot of this was by him I'm not going to use the word lazy but I'm going to, but but recycling himself to knock books out in 3 days because we know he did that but I, I was reading an interview with him not so long ago when he, when he said he was amazed that it took him 6 weeks to write Gloriana I was like you know Gloriana is such a great book how do you produce something of that quality in in 6 weeks and then he took 6 months to do Byzantium Endures but what, mm. but while he's in that process of of knocking out these books super fast, there is an element of I don't know expediency to to recycling yourself in order to do all these things. Nevertheless, that's still a massive talent to do it and to create something so intricate and so exciting and so interesting and so vivid, you know, through a combination of sheer talent and expediency. And I think that's what makes him absolutely unique. Uh, yeah, I I agree entirely with that. I also. Uh, particularly the bit where they're sort of not so sure if it's by design or by by luck or the circumstances. I would, uh, if I were a betting person, then I would say it's almost certainly some of it's to do with recycling. Mm. Um, but I I don't have a problem with that because people recycle plots all the time and they recycle characters. Um, to actually do it consciously and just say, well, yeah, I'm going to do this. Um, what I'm turning out is is still going to be a worthwhile piece of writing um then that's fine and he doesn't take you know five books and many years to rehash his stuff unlike say david eddings who does exactly that and it's not as good the second time round. i think you can say that in moorcock it's it's sort of it is as good the second Mm. time round or third time round yeah and it it does bear rereading yeah absolutely absolutely i'm I'm not going to knock any of it because the product that the means the ends justify the means, I should say, because they're they're so terrific. So you've you've come on not only to talk Moorcock, but just just tell us a little bit about your podcast as well, because you've been covering Moorcock recently, but the podcast's been going on a lot longer than that. So yeah, tell us about Fixplasm. Well, Fixplasm, I'm I'm on episode eighty eight, mm. and um, I uh, I started as a project just after our son was born, and I had this idea about. Um, Let's see, uh, we'd gone on, uh, it was towards the end of the first three months of uh, of, of the um, Rowan coming into the world, where I was taking parental leave. So you could, we could do, um, uh, you could do shared parental leave. And so I got, uh, we had three months together, and then later I got three months on my own as a break from work doing childcare. And what and that was kind of a time of reflection, saying, well, what do I really want to do going forward? And one of the things I thought about was the podcast. Now, I'd already been blogging for years, um, but the podcast had a very specific aim, which was uh, look at a good piece of fiction, talk about the themes in it, and then talk about how to make it into a role-playing game. So we had quite a diverse range of... Uh, we've always had quite a diverse range of content. Um, first thing we covered... Uh, I honestly can't remember it. Was it? it wasn't the book of the new sun? It was something else. Um, but uh, we we covered the eternal champion fairly early on with Josh Fox, 
and um, we've covered uh, Margaret Atwood. We've covered it was the first one was Anne Leckie. It was um, ancillary justice we covered. How can I forget that? Um, so we try to have a, a reasonably diverse authors that we cover as well. And I've covered um, some films and um, and uh, uh, TV shows. I've covered the OA most recently, and some graphic novels. But the idea has always been analyze a plot and the situations in that piece of fiction talk about what's good at it what's good in it not just simply the setting which you might write down if you were going to write a, a splat book about this setting but also write down the plot situations and what drives the plot the the, the rising action the the initial hooks and all of those just to just to talk about what makes it good uh with a with a view to say well if you wanted to make this into a role-playing game you could go beyond just taking a dungeon and pasting it into this setting you actually you should think about the people involved and why they're invested and um i just enjoy, enjoy doing that and one of the things of course with doing that is it also forces me to read and read more widely as well mm. so that was the that was the benefit um so we started that in august 2016 mm. and so we'll be we'll have been going about five years this year i'm going to see if i can get to episode 100 before the fifth anniversary um but we also have lives uh, outside uh, <laughs> role-playing and reading books unfortunately sure. with a with a little one to look after so yeah. um it's a bit of a challenge but that was that that was really it it's, I've got to say, it's it's quite a rewarding pastime. It's certainly a rewarding hobby, and and since uh, since the world changed uh, that little bit more than a year ago, it's it's been a something of a, a sanity lifeline as well. I find actually being able to engage in something like this. Yeah, I I agree, and also the other thing, um, you know, recently I read uh, Jaron Lanier's book, um, Ten Reasons for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now, and one of the things, and and I I wrote I wrote this in a in a tiny letter actually about how he says that podcasting, unlike a lot of other social media, isn't ruined. Mm. And it's because it's consumed sequentially and you don't have visual cues while you are reading and while you're listening to it. Uh, so you absorb it in a totally different way. It's very difficult to get somebody else's attention for the ads in the sidebars or something else they might want to jump to otherwise in terms of like like youtube say you're watching something but actually say well actually that looks more interesting and as a result you don't watch things from start to finish but podcasting because of the way it is set up and partly because of the way it's distributed it's a much more um a much more authentic medium to broadcast over and uh, and for that reason, I think that generally I engage with audio content a lot better than I do with video content. Um, so I, I think that the, that's one of the things that makes podcasting special is that uh, it does connect the the listener much better with the presenter than other kinds of new media content. So um, and long may it remain the same. Mm. One of the other interesting things about doing it is is actually there's an, an incredible community of people out there podcasting and talking to each other, and as, particularly around things like role playing games. So I suppose when we look at that grand Venn diagram of interests, a lot of people, you know, 
overlap quite substantially with the Mocock and, and RPG angles. And I think there's another part of that Venn diagram for me, which is, you know, what my granddad gave me and uh, and things that I came across further on. There's often like a chicken and an egg situation where people came across Mocock. Did they come across it through Appendix N? That's another great podcast to name check as well while we're talking about it. Did they come across it through Appendix N? Or did they come across Mocock and then come across role-playing games? Where, where did, we kind of know where you fell on that diagram, but how did you get in, in, in terms of Mocock? But how did you get into role-playing games? Uh, same, same way that you, most people do sort of in my being about age 10 and uh, and getting a copy of the Fighting Fantasy role-playing game was the first one mm. I played, but I also had the Mensa Red Box role-playing and, um, and uh, Traveller and that. And um, with my little cohort of, of friends, we would um, mostly in breaks at uh, Sixth Form College, we would occupy... Um, a space under a stairwell in an abandoned building and, and play games. <laughs> we played a lot of um, we played a lot of uh, Palladium games. We played Recon and um, we played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. A lot about that, but I I suspect the way I got into role playing games was the same as a lot of people our age, which is I had friends. We were all interested in fantasy and we were all interested in the idea of role playing mm. and. Uh, it became a habit. So it's not something like we had a grand idea that we are going to play a role-playing game. It was more, do you want to come over and you know push some metal figures around a board? Or, or uh, we, we played the Warhammer and, uh, and and did a lot of wargaming as well, painted miniatures, did the whole thing. that I'm, And uh, and we found the games that we liked. Mm. Um, and, of course, I'm, I'm very much invested with the British side, so I vastly prefer fighting fantasy to... Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I like. Obviously, got into Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay when it came out, uh, and the other things that were produced by Games Workshop, like the UK editions of um, RuneQuest and Paranoia, because that was the lifeline. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember when uh, Games Workshop opened up in Southampton in the late eighties, because before then you could still buy role-playing games but they were tucked in the very corner of a hobby shop that was tucked in the very corner of this dark and dank shopping precinct that no one really went to you know, i can remember you, you had to walk to one end of the center of town past the army navy surplus store um, and into this very peculiar um uh, shopping arcade and then it would be right in the corner there next to the knitting patterns were the D&D <laughs> modules. Yeah. And that was, uh, I am certain that I'm not alone in that experience trying to find role-playing content in the, in the 80s and, and also not having much pocket money and sort of going in there, thumbing through things, wondering where I could, uh, what, what, what I could um, stretch to, mm. whatever. But mm. mostly it was, uh, it was obviously the Games Workshop and White Dwarf, of course. Yeah. As uh, as as the um, as the Grognard Files chats will say, everything comes back to White Dwarf. Indeed, uh, because it does. That's that's sort of uh, central to role playing. Mm. Uh, of, of yeah, I, I had a similar experience in that. I suppose the role playing game shops in Hull would pop up and only last about two years because I, d- I don't know what it was about role-playing game nerds in those days I'm, I'm sure most role-playing game nerds go on to have very successful careers in all sorts of areas of business and various other things but the people around the role-playing game shops in Hull tend to be terrible businessmen and their shops never seem to last more than 18 months so you would have somewhere 
you would start to buy role playing games and the shop would disappear and you may not have a shop for a while longer so it was it, you would go through periods where it was really really difficult to get hold of anything and when you did find a new shop that only lasted a year or 18 months as well and the same kind of community of people used to revolve around them but so it wasn't taboo as such but it was hard to find and hard to get hold of which made it a little bit more exciting of a hobby to to kind of get involved in but sure. one of the curious things i suppose for me, being being a Mocock fan from my early teens, thanks to Pops, I also started playing role-playing games from my early teens through some kids at school. And the first role-playing game I ever played was AD&D First Edition. And I must have played AD&D with kids from school for two years. And I was reading Mocock, and I never drew a connection between the two things in, mm. in my mind. Never, ever, because they just seem to be... They might as well have been different genres. And that's one of the curious things about, I think, role-playing games and Mocock, is that his influence is shot through role-playing games. He's quoted as um, influences in a number of games. He's obviously in the DNA of things like Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Um, but I, I, that, that connection was never really there for me. And I, I don't really think that... Mocock's ever really been that well served by a role playing game, even the ones that have actually had his name on the cover. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, um, that that comment you made about D and D being a different genre, going back to my earlier earlier comment about dis- dissatisfaction about eighties uh, fantasy, mm. um, the Dragonlance stories, yeah, well written, well plotted, uh, well paced, but um, so sanitized and not particularly. Uh, they don't bear any relation to uh, the uh, more cocky and fantasy at all, mm. uh, and I, and again, I think it comes back to this this difference in cosmological scope and the place of the characters in the world, and and the the, the zero to hero ethos as well. Yeah, I, think. I, I remember enjoying the Dragonlance books, and, and I did read them at the time. I think they went a little bit wayward eventually when they just became a cash cow. But I, I, I did enjoy them at the time. The second, uh, I, I remember the second trilogy is actually worthwhile, the um, the twins books with mm. Ca- Cameron and Raislin, yeah. uh, which are, because the characters come much more into their own, and, uh, and the other thing is it, it opens with... Cameron being sought out by his old mates, and they find out that he's this revolting, slobbering alcoholic <laughs> who's been, uh, you know, run to flab, and, yeah. and is a shadow. He, he's no, lo- he's basically Conan, yeah. who's uh, fallen so far off the wagon that that the wagon is two miles in the distance, yeah. and um, he and uh, that was a bit of a shock, and also not what you would normally expect, and so that that sort of shook shook me up as a reader mm. and made me sort of think it's not just everyone turns up in a pub wearing shiny armor and then goes and beats some stuff up yeah uh, it was that that i thought was interesting so yeah but yeah still not particularly satisfying in the grand scheme of things no so that, i don't think D really didn't do Moorcock at all not really well but not at all then, of course, we got the Stormbringer game and the Hawkmoon game, and I don't think they really did Moorcock particularly well either. And one of the things that we're doing, which I'll probably refer to elsewhere in this in this particular episode of the podcast, is the game that I'm currently running for a bunch of the patrons, where we've gone through the purely random character creation process and ended up with three sailors, a warrior, and a beggar with leprosy, all of whom have deeply average stats and are the most unheroic... <laughs> Character archetypes you could possibly think of. Yeah, um, a, a game where you, you you could end up being a Phil Carian farmer, 
doesn't really fill me with that Mocock vibe. And so even those games don't really seem to do Mocock well because really, when, when it boils down to it, I think a lot of the people who wanted to play the Stormbringer want to play in the world of the Young Kingdoms. The game doesn't really appear to be set up to mimic a Mocock fantasy novel. I think you'd need to do an awful lot of work to 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 sort of make it make that happen mm. uh, in in those books. They're they're very sparsely written in terms of the um, the the quality in the, in terms of the description. Uh, the magic sections are okay, and the illustrations that go along with the magic sections. In fact, that the whole books they're they're pretty good. But you're absolutely right. The characters it turns out are absolutely rubbish. It's like. <laughs> Why would you bother? I mean, at least, um, uh, I mean, it is, if you think about it, it is also what Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay did. Um, the characters that got turned out were shit, yeah. but it didn't actually try to pretend that it was anything other than sort of, you know, syphilitic and knee-deep in shit, as some yeah. people like to say. Yeah. So that's how Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay was. Yeah, um, I, th- I think there's, but, a, there's a similar analogue for for how you completely and spectacularly fail to recreate a Mococcian experience using a system where a character with 10 hit points can lose limbs with an average blow from a from a really crap villain. Um, and that's the, the Warhammer Fantasy roleplay system is applied and modified to uh, Dark Heresy. Um, se- several years ago, when we came out of Deep Freeze and, and decided to play a game again, I was really taken with the Dark Heresy game, so I thought, right. So my mates, uh, Yaki and Loz, we just had to have a game and we created these agents of the Inquisition. And for those people who don't know, the Inquisition in the world of Warhammer, or the universe of Warhammer 40,000 is all powerful and, and, and really frightening. And these guys were absolute fucking useless. <laughs> they couldn't hit a barn yeah. door. They were fragile. Uh, and once again, it's like a complete failure to reproduce, you know, the, the kind of epic scale of, of, of some some kind of recreation of something really exciting. And it's just not there. It's just not there. That, yeah, uh, that is... I mean, the, the interesting thing about the Warhammer game in general um, is the percentage range that you get say 40 to 70 percent that's a good range for skills because it means that there's always a risk that you might not get it Mm. but there's also uh that there's also you've got a a reasonable chance Mm. um it's better than a range i can't remember who i was discussing this with recently but it's better than the range of say 20 percent if you have 20 percent in skill you wouldn't even attempt anything you'd be so risk averse all the time and if you got 80 percent you'd be expecting to succeed all the time Mm. So when you don't succeed, it's kind of, you know, what's happened? Um, I do like uh, the way that the probability curves have have more or less, they've, they've managed to do that one-third, two-third thing. Um, I do think that some, Powered by the Apocalypse, for example, that, that does... Uh, does quite nicely in terms of the the one third two third outcomes, mm. and it's got a lot of uh, a lot going for it in terms of not having crazy results and also having characters that you feel that if I go and attempt this, uh, then it will be in keeping with my character, and I can expect some sort of interesting result, even if I fail. Mm. Uh, and uh, a lot of those modern games do uh, do very well in that sense. Um, the problem is they don't speak the same language. Mm. Uh, they are they are needlessly arcane. Mm-hmm. Um, now, for for people coming into playing games in the last twenty years, that is not a problem at all because they have probably learnt that and that's bread and butter to them. 
and I don't think they're hard to learn, but they are kind of, you, you read it first of all, you say, what is going on here? What the hell are moves? These all yeah. these individual things. Yeah. Um, and and I say I say this as somebody who've got years of experience playing those games now. Um, designed some myself, and uh, it's yeah, I, I think it's great. But I also think that it is not what we're used to. Yeah, things a lot that both sides can learn from. Yeah. Well, a friend of the show, and I'm sure a friend of yours as well, Neil Burton, has got all my power by the Coplix books now. Is one of the recent Stimble bundles because I've got to uh, say I had them on the shelf for years, and I would regularly pick them up because I've I've I'd felt a really a, a real keen interest in role playing game rule books that I can read in bed that aren't that don't, <laughs> that don't weigh seven kilos. <laughs> and the power yeah, by the fair. apocalypse, like folio size, are A five books, perfect to read in bed. Well, I can't get on with them at all. And it's always the case that you've got to find out. You've got to find out these things through play, haven't you? And we just never got round to playing Powered by the Apocalypse. But no. I've, I've got to say, even though I've bagged Stormbringer the RPG, for example, I don't think it really reproduces uh, Mococcian fantasy in any satisfying way. However, oh. it does really appeal to me because I've always been very, very keen on role-playing games where the players are basically useless shit-kickers. Low-powered gaming is is the kind of gaming I enjoy and the kind of gaming I enjoy running. So I've kind of fallen in love with it, in a way. Stormbringer 3rd Edition, I've fallen in love with it because of what it is. But it's not a Mococ role-playing game. I I agree, totally. And actually, I I really didn't play it very much uh, at all when in 3rd Edition. I've got the 4th Edition. Mm. Um, What I really rated was the the simplicity and the of the magic system and the way it is so different from AD&D. Yeah. And it defies expectations if you compare the two side by side. You can really say this is very distinctively different. Mm. Um, and that is the thing I think it really offers to those games in the sort of all the way through throughout the 80s. It is a it is a very credible and interesting alternative to the, what was the norm which is you have a wizard with spells. Mm. And uh, and I think it also does a good job there. Unfortunately, it has some gaping holes. Mm. If we had time, what, what we decided to do when, when I approached the chaps and said, let's play a game, I said, let's do Stormbring a third edition straight. We'll randomly generate everything. We'll play it and run it exactly as it's determined to be run and played. And then we'll have a conversation about how we think uh, a game should go. I kind of wish we had the time to play 3rd edition, then 4th edition, then Elric exclamation mark, and then Stormbringer, and then Mongoose, and then, you know, for the listeners, there are numerous versions of of Elric role-playing games. Um, The last probably about seven or eight years ago. I would love to kind of go through all those, but we don't have time. There are not enough hours in the day. So what we're probably going to do is is come up with um, our take of what a Mocock game should be and see if there's anything out there that covers that. Now, interestingly, and this is with the thing, one of the things that prompted me to ask you on, is you are developing your own Mococcian role-playing game. Yeah, that's right. I am uh, so t- very, much, very much inspired by 3rd edition, hmm. or 1st to 3rd edition of Stormbringer, yeah. but uh, absolutely with the view that um, the characters should start out um, as confident characters larger than life. Um, now I called it Stormhack, uh, and the reason for that is because it is Stormbringer by way of White Hack and the Black Hack, and I don't know how well you know either of those. Um, of those two, obviously, the Black Hack is the one that everyone's heard of. Mm-hmm. White Hack is uh, predates the Black Hack, and I'm fairly uh, 
doesn't get the limelight. It's in its third edition now, by the way. White Hack yeah. is in its third edition, and I think it's a fabulous role-playing game. Uh, it is very much the sort of a deconstruction of how OSR games work, um, made very fluid and freeform, and um, baking in rules to help the players uh, talk about their characters' backgrounds as part of games and sort of negotiate with the GM for individual roles and, and, and their abilities and talk about why they should be good at a particular thing. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was very much where I was going with, um, with Stormhack, which has gone through several iterations, but uh, now it's, it is kind of an OSR game. Uh, the idea was always, first of all, um, I guess two things. One is the characters should be strong out of the box. Mm. They should have the confidence to take risks and not be punished for it straight away. Yep. Uh, and they should also have a legend behind them uh, that, say, uh, you know, you have three three uh, three three sentences you can write about your character and you can have these as player-facing sentences. So they face into the table and everyone else can read what they are because they've heard of you and they are aware that um, you grow up on a farm in Vilmere but uh, but then you're indoctrinated into the, the Assassin's Guild and are one of the most feared assassins on the Western continent and now uh, and you have a shadowy past where you have a... Um, uh, you have mirror and blood in your in your uh, in your veins or something like that mm. and the idea that you have a um a, i called these uh, these are tags for family company and legacy the idea that you uh, much like white hacks groups you tag one of your ability scores and just say this is where i grew up this is the profession i came into and the people i knew and this is the legacy that that I inherited from my ancestors. Mm. And you have those three things and those defined things. And otherwise, it plays very much like an OSR game. But there are no levels. Uh, there's a much simpler combat. Should be simpler, but at the same time more survivable. There's a few other nuances. I don't want to get too much into the the details here. Yeah. Because uh, the other important thing is, of course, demons. And so originally this was going to be much more of a generic game. In fact, it was originally applied for a totally different game entirely, which was a game called Black Mantle, which is the idea about um, kids born into the drudgery of a, of a life in a dystopian city, finding their way out of that by uh, becoming mantle riders, which is a sort of a bit like a cross between uh, mechs and uh, Britain's Got Talent where you, you basically, <laughs> you, you you choose to become a celebrity riding Mecca outside the city into the unknown and fighting things, where there's a live stream on your on your um, computer and you get experience points for doing things out there which everybody else can see and then you rise up in the social ranks in, your, um, in the city inside. So the idea was you'd have adventures outside and then you'd have downtime scenes inside where you talked about the character becoming more and more famous making connections with new people and whether or not they lose the connections they have already with the family that they've left behind mm -hmm. uh, part of their old community but anyway the the reason that's relevant is because the structure was your character doesn't really get any experience it's your mech who gets experience and it gets upgraded and things like that and i thought well okay and then i started to then i went back to think about stormbringer and I thought, okay, what if you have your characters and they have a bunch of demons? Your characters never get experience. 
it's the demons who get experience. And the demons get experience, they get more powerful, and they can do more things for you. But they also cause more problems. And the decision to use your demons' powers are entirely down to you. So the more that it's really if your demons are causing problems for you it's really your fault mm. and uh, but that's how it should be and, and the idea is that the the other thing is that it should be possible to play this game with uh with a set of characters with powerful demons attached to them and uh also alongside characters who want nothing to do with demons mm. so you can have a moonglum and an elric in the same party mm. And uh, because the idea is that the demons really cause uh, an incredible amount of problems for different characters, but also that the game is generally more survivable and more heroic as mm. well. Um, so that was the, that was where I was going with that, and I think the design I've got now is simple enough that uh, that it would be robust. Because I went through a lot of iterations uh, with this, and some of them were way too complicated, uh, and and so it was very much. I cut out the complicated bits of the uh, bits of the system, but the, mm. but the idea was always a duality between the person and their demon, and the demon's the thing that grows, and yeah. it, you you let it off the leash, it does something for you, and you pay the price, yeah. R- rinse and repeat. Um, I think I should mention uh, also Ron Edwards' Sorcerer, which is very much you know the, the sort mm. of mid nineties answer to the World of Darkness um, mechanically. Uh, this has nothing to do with it, but thematically, it's very much the same sort of thing. It talks about, you know, the now that sorcerer does some interesting things, talking about you summoned a demons, demon, don't, you summoned a demon, demons don't exist in your world, but you summoned one anyway. Mm. Time in, and and it has those interesting ideas. But some of the idea is that demons are a transgressive, corrupting force, and you've harnessed one for your own profit. What happens? Mm. So that that was really the idea I've got, and I think it does fit with Moorcock. Uh, now the other thing that I've I've changed in it recently is I've uh, I focused very much on the allegiances that you have in um, in Stormbringer, just so that uh, when we're talking about gaining experience, the actual mechanism of gaining experience here is through allegiances with your patron. So and and you can have several patrons. Yeah. Um, you usually you just have one, but you might have more than one. But the idea is that, as it, it's it's not so much the demon that grows; it's your allegiance that grows. It corrupts more of your character. It gives you more powers, uh, but it means you're also more enthralled to them. Mm. And that I hope fits much more in the in the idea that, um, you know, the the, the persistent characters throughout Moorcock's stories are characters with. Uh, with some sort of, uh, they are in hock to higher powers, mm. law or chaos or the balance or the beast laws or whatever, and it doesn't really matter. I don't, I don't think it's it's necessary to sort of make a distinction. What matters is there are these higher powers, all of interested parties, all interested in a piece of you, and you can use their power, and then you will suffer for it, mm. or you can say no thanks, uh, and they should be characters turning up. Uh, throughout the game, your your demon should be a character, your patron should be a character, uh, just as in in Moorcock. Mm. And um, you can either choose to whine at the whine about them behind your back as Hawkmoon, or you can choose to tell them what you think of them if you're a quorum. Mm. And I think it's a, 
Um, so I'm not sure how much that makes sense. It should play like an OSR game. Yeah, but well, that, that, makes, that makes sense to me um, because I've played Black Hack, courtesy of uh, Clarky, a.k.a. Keyha, formerly of Dissected Worlds, of course. Aye. Um, I've just bought White Hack, third edition. I've almost pulled the trigger on it previously. I've just got the notebook edition, the hardback from Lulu, so I'm looking forward to reading that. That's on my bedside table. But the stuff that really resonates with what you're saying, and we'll talk about OSR in a second, just for the benefit of people who listen to this podcast who aren't gamers, it might sound a little bit arcane, but the entire point about Mocock characters is for one reason or another, they're not just competent, they're powerful, and they might not be intrinsically powerful, but they've got those advantages, be it a patron demon, be it a, a, a howling demon sword, be it, uh, you know, e- even when Elric is sustained by drugs, he's still got access to a nice suit of armour, an entire army, and um, El Orbex sword, you know. He's, fr- from the very outset, even when he's supposed to be quite weak and, and, and pitiful and his cousin hates him, he's still intrinsically powerful, and that's the point. So the last thing you want in a Moorcock game is for your characters to be afraid of a fight in a pub, just in case one of them loses an eye <laughs> because of the because of the combat rules but precisely but from the perspective of of like not non-gamers and so of course osr means old school renaissance doesn't it but what what is the osr movement in gaming it's a reaction to to D D, isn't it um i guess so it's uh, i i think um I mean, people i've seen people talk about first wave and second wave uh and third wave osr and Sometimes that is from a an academic point of view where they're actually talking about trying to explain it, mm. and sometimes it's from a very self serving view because they like to put themselves in the, in at the edge of the curve. Mm. I'm not going to mention names, mm. uh, but the um, the thing about the OSR originally it was about let's look at the very earliest versions of D and D and play those instead of. AD&D, mm-hmm. I, th- I think is now. Uh, I think there may there's a, probably a lot of challenge to that, but I would say that um, uh, if you say that people are set, are, are told that you know third edition AD&D is the way that a lot of people were playing, and some other people said, well, I've got my rule cyclopedia from basic D&D, or I've got my basic and expert sets. It does everything that I would ever want for a um, a fantasy game. Let's play this instead, and uh, and it's a lot simpler. Mm. I think there's a lot of benefit in doing that. And and as it goes on, I think what we've got now is is it's morphed into an aesthetic. It's um, which includes how adventures are designed and presented, uh, whether or not they're railroaded or whether they're sandboxed. Uh, it, it's a it's an it's an aesthetic that is also tied into Appendix N. Uh, which is unnecessarily uh, glorified, I think, because there's some stinkers in Appendix N, and also it's it ignores all of the other good appendices from similar role-playing games. Like there's a there's a, a recommended reading from Moldvay D and D. There's a recommended reading from RuneQuest. Those are much better than the AD and D Appendix N, quite frankly. Mm. Um, but uh, but it's it it's. There are these aesthetics ex- uh, expectations, I think, in the in the uh, sort of in the second wave of OSR, where it goes beyond. We're just going to use the old system to say, well, it should play out in a particular way. It should be Dunsanian, or it should be more Cockian, or it should be reminiscent of Howard or or, um, or Clark Ashton Smith or whatever. And I think that in itself is good 
if you explicitly say, what I want to do is take the essence of some really great fantasy that really resonates with me and make it into a role-playing game, which is something I think that the RSR does that, pursuant to our previous comments about AD&D being nothing like Moorcock, that AD&D, the sort of this sanitised, overcomplicated uh, and very unimaginative fantasy from first to i i guess all the way through to fifth edition although i, I don't know what they're doing with fifth edition now um but uh ad and itself is a particular kind of fantasy game that does not really reflect particularly good fantasy fiction whereas the osr i think it's it's one redeeming feature is that it tries to get closer to the source fiction mm. and it has it, it and that is really the beating heart of it so regardless of the you know whether you you think that AC should be ascending or descending, or, or how whether weapons should have different die sizes, or what you think about hit points. Um, that is a that's a red herring. Mm. What the OSR is doing is it's, it's actually one of the most exciting thing it has offered is talking about the foundational fiction mm-hmm. uh, in, in a very open way and. Um, and so I think the second generation, subsequent generations of it, uh, they they have inherited a culture. It's not like they're going back to first principles anymore. Mm. They've inherited and, and developed a culture. And I think it's actually a, a really fantastic thing mm. um, for that reason. And you don't have to like all of it, by the way. I mean, it's, no. it's not like sort of there is no there's no single organisation. Um, mm. Some of it's good, and some of it's some of it's not maybe not to your taste. Mm. Oh, OSR is is a complete world of its own now, isn't it? There's probably more OSR out there, role playing game wise, than there is anything else. But I suppose just again, just for just for listeners, we've referred to Appendix N a few times. And if you're not a gamer, Appendix N was a recommended reading list from the first Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Games Master's Guide back in oh, probably the late seventies. Now, wasn't it? And it had all sort, all sorts of things on it. it. Had the Singing Citadel, I think, by Moorcock, as well as all sorts of other things you've mentioned, Clark Ashton Smith, and there was the Jack Vance and everything else. All sorts of stuff in there. So, if you're wondering what the hell we're talking about when we're talking about Appendix N, it was basically a reading list at the end of the AD and D Dungeon Master's Guide. But you, you, well, actually, a bit a bit of self promotion. Yeah. I did collect all of these. Uh, the, the different appendices they are in a blog post on on uh, the on Victorplasm website aha which, so if uh, you're interested and you want to go down that rabbit hole yeah well i mean credit to fifth edition dnd it has appendix e mm. and appendix e includes some more diverse interesting fiction like uh throne of the crescent moon by Saladin and ahmed who mm-hmm. oh yeah. have i have i pronounced that um, we we did a Fictoplasm episode on that title actually, but it's in um, Appendix E for D and D Fifth Edition. So you know, I I I I want to credit A D and D Fifth Edition for actually still having some literary roots yeah. and some and some more diverse fantasy hooks. As Throne of the Crescent Moon is interesting fantasy. Again, it's it's sort of it is not cookie cutter Western uh, fantasy as well. Um, but it still it feels like AD and D as well, mm. and that I, I know it's hard to say, but it's it's worth reading. But anyway, um, if I could give you that link, then maybe your listeners can go and find out what was yep. recommended. I will pop it in the uh, in the show notes when, when we put this out, and and any, any other blog posts that you want to point people to as well, and then sure they thing. can get down that rabbit hole and lose themselves for a while, which I'll probably <laughs> end up doing myself when you send the link through. Now you also mentioned um, the Sorcerer RPG as well, and. 
and uh, yes. a, another chap who we interact with on Twitter, John Wilson, who's on Twitter as at Bionic Buddha, in his pinned tweet has got a link to his, um, he refers to it as an Ashcan supplement, which I think is a Ron Edwards uh, terminology, who was the, the writer of Sorcerer, called the Elric Dictionary, which was his take on how you would turn Sorcerer and the, I think it's Sorcerer and Sword, the supplement, isn't it? That oh, that, that, that is very interesting, because yeah. uh, um, I don't know if you know that, um, I can't remember the author, but the he he wrote the the dictionary of Mu, so and this is a sorcerer supplement. Mm-hmm. I've I, um, I was amazed that you see. I want to say Jared Sorensen, but it's not Jared Sorensen. It's the other guy, and it's the guy who did um, uh, a particularly foundational RPG podcast. And I'm really embarrassed that I can't remember the name. <laughs> well, so just, maybe we should just edit to, edit this bit. <laughs> just, just to distract people from your poor memory. Um, I will say that that tweet that you put out about the Moo Dictionary in the short exchange we had about the Dictionary of Moo ended up costing me 65 quid. <laughs> but it's worth it. And it's I've, so good. I've got a copy of that. Funnily enough, only about three volumes down below that is uh, the um, the Saladin Ahmed um, book that you mentioned as well. And I've still not um, still not read that either. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> so, um, but the but but this I I don't know if if uh, this person has um, been inspired by the dictionary dictionary of Mew to call it the dictionary of Elric. I mm. think it's a fantastic title. Yeah. Um, I will say that um, whilst I I'm sort of on the fence about sorcerer um, in terms of is it a is it a good RPG? I think it's got some stunning bits in it, including the informational design. I also think it's very interesting and good. Because it, where a lot of a lot of role playing games might just sort of hedge on what is good and what is bad, and sort of not really try to offend the reader. Yeah. Edwards is not backwards in coming forwards with his opinions, and I think that that is incredibly refreshing. And that's mm-hmm. why uh, Sorcerer is something that everyone should read, uh, even if you because you you will disagree with some of it and you agree with other bits. But it is uh, it is extremely thought-provoking for that reason mm-hmm. but the real jewel in sorcerer is definitely sorcerer and sword and it's got a magnificent bibliography uh it talks about three ages of fantasy writing mm-hmm. the first one being of course the, the howard the lovecraft the clark ashton smith and then uh getting on to sort of later it's called the fans and the imitators of mm-hmm. which uh fritz lieber is one I think Fritz Lieber comes in the second generation. Morcock certainly is. Mm-hmm. And then there are various other people in the sort of Lee Brackett and um, C.L. Moore and um, various other excellent authors. And then it talks about the, the, the third generation, which is, I can't remember who's in that. It's certainly the least interesting and the, the closest to the fantasy that I am not particularly interested in. Mm-hmm. But I would say that if, um, if your listeners get a chance to read Sorcerer and Sword, particularly for the bibliography section, mm. uh, that is worth their time, definitely. Yeah, well, I, w- I would definitely second that because um, it's, it's hard to get in print, but I picked up that you can still get the PDF straight from Ron's site. And I've yep. got Sorcerer, uh, Sorcerer and Sword and two others, and the the one with sex in the title, the exact name of which I can't, I can't remember. Sex and Sorcerer and the Sorcerer's Soul. Yep. So, the, uh... so I got those three PDFs and got them printed up um, as a paperback on Docs Direct for about... 20 quid um, and I did read the the bibliography bit in Saucer and Sword is basically the first part of the book isn't it and it is excellent the really annoying part is though I bought all of that realizing, knowing that I've got Saucer on the shelf now and now I can't find the bloody thing and I've looked high and low <laughs> for it so maybe that got lost to the mists of time and I might have to get that printed up as well but no I would definitely back you up on that I think that's a great supplement Yeah. so what's your what are your plans for, for Stormhack what's next 
Um, well, it's currently available on my itch uh, as a beta, entirely free to just go and download and have looks at. I'm gonna I'm gonna make imp incremental improvements, but it's come to the point where I want to play test it solidly, and I have been uh, adapting the three-part series uh the mad hack laughs from white dwarf 95 to 98 yep. just before it was awful uh so uh the, there's a the, there was a preamble and then three separate adventures and i'm gonna adapt that cut it down condense it make it actually a viable non-ambling about uh scenario much more much faster paced hopefully worthy of uh, Moorcock's format in itself and I'm planning to run that at Grogmeet if I get to get any interest there mm. and for a couple of other players um, a couple of other groups back home mm -hmm. uh, sort of so um, hopefully I'll get I'll get uh, the perspective of some some people at Grogmeet and also um, people like Dave Morris and Tim Harford um, I'm very fortunate to have played games with them and I've offered it to them so maybe I'll get their opinion as well because mm. um, they're also yeah of the same mind as far as fantasy fiction goes. Yeah. And, well, I'll, um, I'll definitely put my name down for that at Grog Meet and keep my fingers crossed. Glorious. Mm. Um, and yeah, the, and the, the intention is really that that's the first... I'm, I'm not only um, I'm not only uh, trying this most recent version of the game out, I'm also uh, trying to put my money where my mouth is in terms of hacking about old Chaosium uh, scenarios. So one of the reasons I did Stormhack was because I wanted to run... Um, old 80s and 90s Chaosium scenarios which are pretty good quality mm. uh, you know things like um, Sorcerers of Pantang uh, things like the, the Sea Hamguao and Dai and um, <laughs> that's uh, and, and some of the other titles in there which all have uh, you know gigantic kites and, and the appearances of gods and um, being chased through the city by uh, by screaming a uh, city of screaming statues and all this other wonderful stuff yeah. that's really good um and uh, i do think that there is the mad the madcap laughs is not a bad scenario it suffers i think partly for being having been written to a deadline in a magazine and um partly just from the general way that those scenarios were written, which was some of the bits are aimless and some of the bits are saying, well, you're expecting the party to get to this bit at some point. Um, they might do these things, but it doesn't really tell you how to connect things. It also allows for far too much ambling about. So you need to stick a knife in it, as mm. uh, Rutger Hauer would say. So You know what? Destiny has got to guide those characters somehow, hasn't it? Fate, Absolutely. fate must guide them to where they need to go, and, you know, <laughs> and if and if they're going to be car up, they've got no control over it whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, and probably no filter either. No. So, yeah. what's next up on Fictoplasm? Um, well, I have been going through uh, the most recently. I've been reading from start to finish. Um, well, intending to read from start to finish all fourteen volumes of the nineties editions of Moorcock. So, I've done the first three volumes. Uh, with um, of uh, Von Beck, uh, Eternal Champion, and Hawkmoon, and the next one is Corum. Now, the the goal I've got there is not so much to read the um, is it, is to give a detailed synopsis, but it's more to say what was Moorcock thinking, and what do these gradually reveal to us about the entire multiverse as we read these through in sequence. And they have um, they all have great cover art. They have mm. forwards by Moorcock. And uh, and then there is an interesting progression that you can see. And what I'm really interested in is 
and I'm not exactly sure what it is, but what Moorcock was thinking about when he curated them in that order. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the big project, and that'll take a good while to finish. Um, I'm hope- hopeful to have a few guests on to talk about them in mm-hmm. the near future. Um, aside from that, I've got a, a reading list for this year. I fancy uh, I, it's high time I reread uh, The Anubis Gates by Tim Powers, so I'm going to cover that. Um, I fancy doing some Grant Morrison. Uh, I uh, fancy reading uh, The Sparrow by Mary Dora Russell. Uh, and I can't remember what else is on my list, but it's, it, I've basically got a list of books that I intend to get through. Mm. Uh, and so those are that. Um, some Clark Ashton Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to read a bit more of that as well. And um, I have um, I do have, back in the early, early noughties, um, I I got into the fantasy masterworks and the SF masterworks in a big way. Now they're they're problematic in that they're a massive sausage fest. Mm-hmm. It takes about you know Ursula Gwynn is the first female author who appears in uh, the SF masterworks, and that's like book the Dispossessed is book eighteen or something like that. Mm. Kind of symptomatic of the writing environment as well. So I I think you need to sort of read those in mind. Yeah. Um, that said. I'm a huge fan of them simply because it, it gave me access to those books, which were otherwise much harder to find. And they're, they're obviously they were curated for an, an audience to, to allow you to read a bit more widely than it was otherwise allowed. Yeah. So I've got the Clark Ashton Smith one of those, uh, and I've got a few others. I want to read some more Gene Wolfe, and uh, oh yeah, that's the Rune Stuff one, isn't it? Yeah, I think I've got the Clark Ashton Smith one over here somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's I, good, I went, good stuff. I, I went down the fantasy masterworks rabbit hole at one point. Oh, I can but, see. Um, yeah, yeah, that's uh, see the Zelazny and the Gene Wolfe. Have you seen the Emperor of Dreams? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Have you seen the um, the uh, uh, Folio Society version of the Book of the New Sun recently. No, I haven't. That's a uh, hundred and twenty-five quid for both volumes. Yeah, I, I, had, um, I had to wean myself off Folio Society because yeah. the shelf started building up with them. Uh, I, I got the I got Dune. I got the um, the Call of Cthulhu edition. Um, I got some Ray Bradbury ones, and they're absolutely Aye. they're absolutely beautiful. But the shelf was starting to sag, and I thought I've got to stop. I've got to stop spending these ridiculous amounts of money on hardback books in slipcases that'll go on the shelf that I'll never read because I read in bed. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. you need a, you need a lectern to deal with us. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a huge Kindle fan. I'm yeah. sort of um, and and I'm a fan of electronic devices that allow me to sync across several things. And, yeah. and just you know, when I'm taking taking our son to the park, then I can also, when I'm you know making sure he's not killing himself, I can just catch up on a bit of reading as well. Yeah. But yeah, I've got I've got a range of things that I'm I'm intending to read. Um, Tim Powers is certainly coming up soon, uh, and um, a few other things. I fancy reading more Patricia A. McKillop. Have you read any of no. her stuff? So I covered Ombre and Shadow, and it's absolutely fabulous. Um, and um, she wrote The Forgotten Beasts of Eld and uh, The Wishmaster, I think. is I'm, I can't remember what it's actually called, but it's like that's a trilogy of books. The right, Forgotten okay. Beasts of Eld, I started, and I, I need to start it again. Uh, that's 20 years, um, 20 years earlier than... Ombre in Shadow. Yeah. And what's going to be very interesting is the way that her pacing and turns of phrase is different. Um, and it's not very much. I mean, the Ombre in Shadow is just fantastic for how quickly it moves mm. and how imaginative it is uh, in terms of uh, imagining an undercity in an underworld and falling into the city's history as a sort of another part of the city. Um, I did that as part of um, talking about fantasy cities and you know, trilogies. So I talked about. Harrison and um, 
and Mary Gentle as well. Right. Uh, but um, but yeah, so I've got a lot of things I want to read and not that much time. So who knows what's going to happen next? Yeah, my my, yeah. my to read pile is is ridiculously high, and you know just just doing a, a more co- focused podcast is is eating into a lot of the things that that I really do want to read. But not enough hours in the day. I really need to hurry up and retire without wishing my life away. But I really do need to hurry up and retire so I can do this type of stuff more often. But you know, so that is a fine ambition. Mm, so, yeah. Well, you know what, Ralph? It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. It's been a really great conversation. I look forward to getting into Stormhack as it develops um, because I think uh, I'm going to take another look at it I really dearly hope I get to play it at Grogmeet and uh, I wish you well with it but I also wish you well with the podcast well, I appreciate that, thanks very much It's um, it's been wonderful to be a guest so I appreciate it absolute pleasure, thank you thanks, bye <laughs> Thanks to Ralph for being such a great guest. His thoughtful and very considered take on Mocock and games was really rewarding for me to listen to and I hope it was for you too. You'll find links to his Itch.io page and the latest iteration of Stormhack, the exclamation mark edition, in the show notes along with his blog posts on Appendix N and its variants, as well as the RuneQuest equivalent. We'll be returning to the gaming world of Mocock again soon with another fellow podcaster, and the gang playing my Stormbringer game as we have a roundtable discussion about our impressions of the game, the rules, and what we think should be in a more cocky and role-playing experience. Meanwhile, the audio version of the Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly remains on a short break for a couple of reasons. First, I haven't written Chapter 11 yet, and second, the production has taken on an additional level of complexity, as my old mucker Wayne, aka Nand, is now scoring it. This collaboration has elevated my lame Mocock fanfiction, or pastiche, or whatever it is, to an altogether better level than my prior attempts. And we're so pleased with chapters 8 to 10, we're now revisiting chapters 1 to 7 to revise them, add original scoring, and improved vocals. I've already re-uploaded episodes 12 and 13 with the Redux versions of chapter 1 and 2 closing those shows, so if you have been enjoying the audio journal, check those out, because Wayne's work is really superb. And he's also been composing some original tracks inspired by the journal, and you can hear his banging tune fleeing the ornithopters at the close of this show. Um, I'm not really sure I should say banging tune when I'm this late in stage in my life, but, you know, it's great. The first volume of the journal, covering chapters 1-7, to seven, is now available in a patron-exclusive chapbook edition too, showcasing the frankly fucking fantastic artistic chops of Simon Perrins and Neil Burton. So our patrons now have access to the PDF version of Volume 1 via the Patreon page, and our patron demons have physical copies on the way. As with Wayne's input on the audio version, I feel extraordinarily fortunate to have had Simon and Neil's work enhancing the journal, and it feels like a true community effort now. Special props to Simon, too, for not only the artwork, but also the design and layout work. I think it looks really fantastic, and I'm really proud. Anyway, it's time to thank our patrons. First, our Chaos Engineers. Hard at work on the good ship Donblas, and trying to dodge Brute of Lashmar's attempts to get the multiplayer's Danus Reglathium LARP. They are Andrew Van Ness, John Lays, Ben Fletcher, Andrew Ciclunas, John Timothy Watt, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Jim Kirkland, Dave Washman, Mal Pertwee, Fred Keish, and, joining the crew, and already trying to dodge Brute, is Tony Malazzo. Check out Tony's books Picking Up the Ghost and the Firth Machine and visit his site at tonymalazzo.com. 
Our Jugaderos are busy trying to up the stakes at the Terminal Cafe as someone has nicked all the D6s for a World of Darkness game, and they seem to have far more D12s than anything else, and really, what are D12s even for? Please tell us, Stephen Round, Alex Harris, Ian Stead, Randall Gatlin, Clarky. By the way, check out Clarky's back catalogue of the excellent Dissecting Worlds podcast and pressure him to do more. Also Taylor, Craig, Loz, of course, Tom Murphy, and joining the gaming tables we have Miles Reed Labato. Welcome Miles, and thanks for the support. And finally, of course, thanks and gratitude to our patron demons, deities of the higher worlds, elemental forces, and eater of souls. Graham Holden, sailor on the duck ponds of fate. Joe Monty, publishing editor of the upcoming Saga Press Elric tomes. Get them pre-ordered if you haven't already. Anthony Piconti, writer of things that lighten the dark and are really damn interesting to boot. The Shredder of Souls and Mighty Riffs, Nathan Gulljaz. Bob McMillan, writer of letters from the old country. Something hides behind the ink. The papyrus has a quality, hard to define. Seems familiar somehow, but only to a degree. The comfort of the recognition dismissed by something different. And deliberate. Uh, Neil Burton, the Destiny Knight, rider of snails and faller from ladders. Dread Mortman, guardian of Lidget Green. Paul Hillary, the decidedly no longer lapsed gamer. And last but not least, Sir Norman of Beresford, the OG patron, the baker on the rocks. My thanks to all of you. Right, enough of my yakking. If you want to have a natter, we are at Breakfast Ruins on Twitter and Instagram. You can email us on breakfastruins at outlook.com. The website and blog is breakfastintheruins.com. You can also now listen to BITR Breakfast in the Ruins Radio on Radio Garden, Live Online Radio, and other internet radio clients. But Radio Garden is such a great app, I strongly recommend you have a play with it if you haven't already, and you'll find us under the green blob over Bradford in the UK. So this internet radio station is a work in progress, but you can hear episodes of the show on there and music by friends of the show, including Metal and Space Rock from Nathan and Dave, a.k.a. Coram and Cernus, as well as Graham's drone project, Apkalu of Enmakar, Loz and Nelbert's band Giant Kind, the glorious electronica, of course, of Nand, the massively varied outputs of Canadian uber musician and producer Alistair Thompson, and a whole load of other fantastic music that's either directly Mocock-inspired or that fits with that Mococcian ethos of collaboration and a bit of anarchy. Details are on the website on the dedicated radio page. If you're knocking out creator-owned music of any genre, and you dig Mococ, and it has any kind of Mococcian influence, or just a mutually supportive community approach to music, and you want your gear on the station, just drop me a line. OK, I'm done. Stay tuned, and turn up the volume for fleeing the Ornithopters by Nand. But for now, stay safe, and I'll see you soon on the Moonbeam Roads. Thank you.